Hello and welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast where you get to sit in on conversations about books and reading with the ultimate book lovers, librarians. In each episode, we'll explore a theme and tell you what we're excited about reading right now. We hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Megan. Hi, this is Eunice. Hi, this is Matt. Hi, I'm Kate. Hi, this is Jen Forget. And this is your host, Jen Webb. And now you know what everyone's voices sound like. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here today to talk about uh, Common Ground, A Turbulent Decade in the Lives of Three American Families by J. Anthony Lucas. Uh, and we're going to kind of expand out from there to look at books that connect with this book, um, other things you might be interested in, things that fill in the picture about the history of civil rights in America. Um, and we're going to talk about books for all different age groups. So we really encourage you to get into this topic because there's so many good books. Um, Common Ground itself, it's an incredible book. I was reading it, I'm like, this is really good! I was like, oh, it won a Pulitzer. <laughs> and several other awards as well. <laughs> like, oh, okay, yeah. So other people agree with me, it's really good. Um, it's interesting because it was written in the 80s, and you can kind of tell. Like, it's written in a very kind of storytelling style. Um, it's very rich, very detailed, very descriptive, and there are no footnotes of any kind. So you kind of just have to jump in and go with it. Um, and, you know, you know, it has been criticized a little bit for being so narrative and not citing specific sources for a lot of this stuff. But he spent seven and a half years writing it, did like 550 hours of interviews. Um, so it's an incredible achievement. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it looks at the Boston busing crisis of the 70s um, through sort of the histories of three different families, um, plus some of the major players involved. But it mostly centers on three families, an Irish-American family, um, working class from Charleston, um, a black family, and a sort of a upper middle class white liberal family, Yankee liberal family as they're called them, um, who all in various ways were involved. And it really, you know, it goes, this book has everything. <laughs> I'm going to take a moment to be Stefan from Saturday Night Live. This book has everything. <laughs> it's got the American Revolution. It's got the Irish peasant revolts. It's got Jonathan Kozel. I didn't even realize that Jonathan Kozel was writing about Boston. I've even read some of his books, and I somehow had forgotten this. I'm such but a yeah. bad librarian that I have no idea who that is. <laughs> so Jonathan Kozel was a teacher, and he wrote many important books, such as <laughs> There Are No Children Here. Oh, um, I am a terrible librarian. <laughs> it's okay. Um, very, really interesting guy. I read many wonderful books. Um, but he was fired from a Boston school for teaching a poem by Langston Hughes, to his students because the poem was about a conflict between a black tenant and a landlord. Um, and he was told that, you know, only uplifting positive things should be presented to wow. the students. Um, and this is like way back before all the busing things started, you know, so he's, he was one of the few teachers trying to actually bring kind of relevant materials into the curriculum for his black students. So yeah, there's that, there's a bunch of stuff about Lexington in this book which is amazing, it's awesome. There is a whole reference to the Lexington Fair Housing Committee, uh, of which we have the papers in our archive. So if you're local, oh. you should really come check those out. It's very interesting um, about landlords refusing to rent 
or sell to black families um, in the 60s and uh, the steps that were taken to deal with that. And the, uh, the divers were the upper middle class family in the book have a strong Lexington connection. Uh, and it's just fascinating because the book really, it really shows you how kind of the stories that we tell about ourselves and our family histories shape, you know, our reactions to the issues that we're faced with in our lives. And, you know, each of these families has a very strong story. It tells itself based on its history, you know, whether it's a history of kind of escaping from slavery and making a life in the North or a history of kind of being Irish peasants and clashing with you know, the British landlords um, and then facing pre prejudice against the Irish here, or whether it's a story about being descended from you know, Revolutionary War heroes and standing for freedom and standing for mm -hmm. democracy and abolitionism. And it was just, you know, it's so fascinating and it's so timely in a way that's a bit depressing <laughs> because when you look at these really difficult issues of race and class, and gentrification and urban renewal and all the stuff that the book is talking about in the 70s, really we're talking about the same things now. Mm -hmm. So the moral of the story is these problems are really intractable <laughs> and sometimes government programs are not the best way to solve them. But then again, you know, what is? If, it, if it's not, if the government's not the most effective tool to step in and fix this stuff, then how do you fix it? This room full of librarians <laughs> is going to answer this question for you. <laughs> well, it's yeah. never a bad position to read more, get more perspectives, and just kind of learn more about it. There's just so there's so much on this subject, and there's many great books about busing. Um, there's all kinds of interesting stuff around the iconic photograph that sort of symbolizes the whole busing crisis, which is. The Soiling of Old Glory, which also won a Pulitzer, which is the photograph of a black lawyer, Ted Landsmark, um, who looks like he's about to be stabbed with an American flag wielded by a bunch of young men who are um, kind of Irish-American Charlestown teenagers, basically, who do appear in this book. And I recently heard an NPR piece, which we will link to, an interview with Ted Landsmark um, recently, looking back on that. It's very fascinating. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff in here about, there's a scene about protesting the Pledge of Allegiance, which connects directly to some of the protesting we're seeing now. It was just every page, I'm like, oh my god. <laughs> every page there's a connection to something that's happening right now. Mm -hmm. I've talked a lot, so I'm going to let <laughs> someone else talk. Um, I think we all have broad books that we want to talk about. Mm -hmm. so, uh, um, I guess I can go next if we just want to go, I don't know. Sure, let's go again. So I'm just going now. Um, so my recommendation is something that has gotten a lot of attention, um, Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, it is beautiful. It's amazing. It deserves every word of praise, I think, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Mm -hmm. um, what is really astounding about this book is that it's like 156 pages or something, and yet it took me a solid week to read it because... Sometimes every other page I felt like I had to stop and think about it and process and then badger someone to talk to me about it and then like sit quietly and think with you know think about it and then go back. Um, it's framed as a letter to his 15-year-old son, um, which makes it really approachable, I think, in a lot of ways because you hear this really personal side of all of these issues and um, you hear a very real human 
fear for his son and concern for his son. Um, and it also is nice because it kind of has a cross-generational appeal then. Like, he's talking, you know, as somebody who's older and who has experienced a lot, and then talking to his son who is just coming up in the world in a very different economic um, and, or socioeconomic status than when um, the author was growing up. So you can really see all these different life experiences in one book. Um, part memoir, part history, part social issues book, um, and it just traces sort of the author's journey through dealing with the idea of race and what it means to exist in the United States as a black man. Um, it's, it's so, so good. I feel like I don't even have anything else to say about it yet because I am still processing it. Mm -hmm. um, but Toni Morrison is the only person they asked to write a blurb for it. Um, and she did. <laughs> and part of me just wants to, like, give him a high five for, like, aiming right for the top. Like, don't bother with anybody else. Just get Toni Morrison. And she said it best. She said this should be required reading. Um, I think everybody, teenagers through adults, should read this book. It won the 2015 National Book Award for Nonfiction. Um, it was also a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. And it definitely was worth it. Yeah, I think it's amazing. I also, I mean, I've read a lot of Coates. Um, he is a staff writer for The Atlantic, and a lot of his other pieces, I mean, I basically read everything he reads, or writes. I think he's really, really wonderful. I think his, he's like a great thinker of our, of our age. I think kind of tying in with like the, the fair housing thing, um, his article, The Case for Reparations, that made a big splash in The Atlantic, mm -hmm. is a really fascinating, fascinating article. And I recommend everyone read it. No matter what you think you think or know about reparations, it has a lot of amazing history and a lot of um, thought-provoking things. So I thought it was really well done. Um, so I would recommend anything he writes, but specifically Between the World and Me. Yeah. Excellent. I learned recently, to my great surprise, that um, it's pronounced Ta-Nehisi. Oh, Which thank is you completely for... not how it's spelled, but public service announcement. Thank to you. To our listeners, oh, now you yes. know. I did not know that. Thank yeah. you. I know. It's, it's, not, it's not what you would expect phonetically, so I'm, I'm really lucky that I heard someone saying his name on the radio like, who would know. Like, <laughs> oh, thank goodness. <laughs> because it's always, and I cannot read those like pronunciation guides you find online. I can't online, either. Like, and I really should be able to, I but I don't understand them. I don't either. So, Thank you, the radio. <laughs> All right. Who's next? Maybe if we have Miko next, we can go in reverse order of how old you should be to read the books, because I have a wonderful young adult book to start with. Yeah. And as everybody in the room knows, I've been trying to like push this into other people's hands in order to get somebody else to read it, so I have someone to talk to about it. Um, so I just read uh, Dreamland Burning, which is by Jennifer Latham. Um, it's coming out in January. I got an advanced copy, so... Hopefully by the time you hear this, you might be able to request it from the library. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> put your own on. Um, so this book, it dealt with, it's, it's fiction. Um, it dealt with a piece of American history that I was completely unaware of that was horrifying. Um, half of the book takes take place in the present and the half uh, takes place in uh, 1921 during uh, the Tulsa race riots, which I had never heard of and it's horrible. Um, the Tulsa Race Riots, which, um, if you, like me, did not know what it was, there, according to the press, a uh, black man, an African-American man, something happened between him and a white woman, white girl in an elevator, and basically set off a nerve that led to the entire black sector of Tulsa getting burnt to the ground. 
somewhere between 30 and 300 African Americans were murdered. And I had no idea. Hmm. Um, so the book uh, takes place, um, it starts off with our main character, Rowan, who um, she's you know, 17 from a wealthy family. Um, her mother's African American, her dad is white, white, white. Um, and so she has kind of a different place. Um, she's still kind of figuring stuff out, but she doesn't really think about race. And that's kind of one of the fun things about the book is that she kind of figures out some stuff about herself. Um, anyway, they're um, renovating the servants' quarters because it's an old, old Tulsa house. Mm-hmm. And when they're renovating that, well, they find a dead guy under the floor. Mm. Um, so, so that's part of the, the half the book. And the other half is looking back to 1921, where you know that one of these characters is going to be the dead person under the floor, and the book does a great job of keeping it in the air until the very last minute mm-hmm. as to who is that under the floor. Um, it's a really great book that it could have just done the murder mystery, um, but again, tying into things that are still happening today, uh, Rowan, and I won't ruin what he was rather surprised to me in the book, um, she gets entangled in the death of an unarmed um, homeless man who was African-American who was killed by a white man and has to kind of grapple with being put into the spotlight because she saw what happened. Was it racially motivated? She doesn't really know. She doesn't really want to make a big publicity thing or maybe it's the right thing to, to do. Uh, so it's it's a, not a long book, but it deals with a lot of really big issues in, I felt, a really elegant way um, that it, there's not a right or wrong answer. Um, she get, they get some things wrong. And like I said, it deals with this part of like really horrifying American history that even Tulsa, they talk about in the book, buried from the school books for until very recently, that mm-hmm. no one knew that this happened. Mm-hmm. And people knew it happened, but it was just not talked about. I mean, this was 1921. This was not even 100 years ago. And it was, it was really moving. And usually I get more emotionally caught up with fi- nonfiction books, but here it is. I'm thinking about this book, and my voice is cracking. So mm. read it. Excellent. All right, well, I will go next since I have the next uh, age set. I have a middle grade novel here called Gold Dust. It's written by Chris Lynch, and it is set in Boston in 1975. So we have our main character, Richard. He's a seventh grader, and he goes to Catholic school. And the love of his life is baseball. He thinks about baseball all the time. If he's not playing baseball, he's thinking about the Red Sox, and he's very excited because in 1975, it's the year that the Gold Dust Twins are um, recruited to the Red Sox. It's Jim Rice and Fred Lynn, and everyone in Boston knows that these guys are gonna change the Red Sox forever. So Richard understands baseball, but there's a lot going on in the world that he doesn't understand. For example, he admits right off the bat that he doesn't understand what he calls the busing thing. Um, and he sees that people are angry about it. He recognizes that you know, on the news, um, people are really upset and it's just not something that he comprehends. So he kind of calls attention to that. At school, Richard um, meets a new student named Napoleon. Napoleon's from Dominica and he is one of the few black students at this Catholic school. Uh, Napoleon speaks grammatically perfect English, so the word ain't isn't 
in his vocabulary at all. And that's one of the first things that Richard kind of sets on is like, oh, we got to teach you how to talk. (laughs) If you're going to be in Boston, we got to teach you a few things. And and there's so much about Napoleon that's confounding to Richard. Um, But the most confusing thing of all is that Napoleon doesn't love baseball. And Richard is just so captivated by baseball and so in love with it that he just can't comprehend that someone else might not love it as much as he does. And so Napoleon and Richard's friendship kind of starts with this revelation. And throughout the book, their whole friendship is kind of a way to look at cultural differences and also just personal preferences um, and trying to, well, what Richard really fails at is to understand that Napoleon has different likes and dislikes and that you know his his failing is that he can't put himself in Napoleon's shoes um so he has a hard time realizing that he's projecting his worldview and his feelings onto Napoleon but that's very easy for the reader to see and I think it's something that even younger readers will will identify um, quite easily now, unfortunately, we don't have any chapters from Napoleon, but otherwise, it's it's really a, an enjoyable read. Um, it's an excellent choice for anybody who's a baseball fan because the baseball parts are told so passionately. Um, and it's a really good choice for classroom use or even a family who wants to start talking about these kinds of things um, to talk about racial or cultural differences or just a very gentle introduction to the history of busing in Boston. So um, I, I would definitely recommend this. Um, it probably ages 10 to maybe even up to 15, grade nine, nine or 10. Um, really fun one, it's called Gold Dust. Right. I'm going even younger. <laughs> so I have um, a couple picture books that I want to recommend. Um, one is directly related to Common Ground, um, which is Blessing Brewster by Richard Michelson. Um, this is a picture book um, that talks about busing through the eyes of a first grader named Brewster. Um, and he, in the book, learns from his mom that he'll be going to Central, which is quote unquote the white school, and he'll be taking a bus to get there. Um, and it's just about his first day of going to this new school, uh, which he wasn't really you know, prepared to go to. Um, And so the book does a really good job about um, kind of showing uh, what it's like for a first grader to kind of be put into this world. Um, It does a really good job of um, bringing up issues like angry protesters who are protesting um, the busing. And then there's also a fight that happens in school with one of the white boys um, and he is put into detention. Um, But I think what the most uh, amazing part of this book is kind of the, excuse me, underlying um, story of Brewster and his dreams of getting a good education and of um, his mom kind of introducing him to the dream of being the first black president. And at the time when this book was written, Obama had not been elected (laughs) to be president yet. So even the author was kind of dreaming and was wondering if maybe this would happen one day. So I think it's funny to look at it in hindsight. Um, But 
I think one of the major themes of the book was um, Brewster meets a librarian at the school. And, and the librarian um, kind of shows Brewster that um, he can be dreaming those big dreams um, and saying that she'd help him get there um, as long as he went to the school. Um, so, yeah, um, it doesn't really have an ending that's kind of, you know, um, neatly tied with a bow, but um, it definitely gives um, a good platform to discuss with your child about um, this specific instance in history. Um, and the book does a really good job in bringing up a lot of different things you can talk about and different angles you can approach the situation. Um, and then my other book is Let's Talk About Race by Julius Lester. Um, and this one's just kind of a very, very brief introduction to what race is and talking about how, um, how everyone has a story um, and race is just one of the many different things that makes up a person and the person's story. Um, the book does a really, really good job about um, explaining that sometimes people um, use race to um, say that that's the only story, um, but when you look at people and look at what makes um, people very similar, we're all bones under that skin. So um, it has really great illustrations and it's a good one to check out to read um, to your kid um, to kind of get the conversation started, for sure. Excellent. Thank you so much for bringing those. So we're going to back back to adult territory. I, I, I'm suspecting that Matt has adult books to talk about, and I definitely do. Yeah. Um, I actually, it dawned on me, like, right before we were going to do this, I didn't actually check, but I remember in as a part of my in the high school curriculum, we read John Howard Griffin's Black Like Me. Mm-hmm. Is that still, like, included in, I mean, you would probably know best, Jen, but in, like, required reading, because it's a kind of a problematic I book. I think it used to be on the reading list. I know I had it in my reading list collection, but I haven't seen it on the list recently. I'm sure other experiences than a white guy taking mm-hmm. skin darkened <laughs> pills is... Yeah. Yeah, it's still a, I mean, it's a fascinating document, absolutely. But yeah, I think it's not assigned as much anymore because... It is a bit of a relic of a bygone. Mm -hmm. Blackface, it's okay, like... (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to look at some of these books, which were incredibly important and cutting edge um, in their time, but you look at them now and you're like, why were we not, why were we not bringing forward black voices on this topic you know it's you know I I laugh like ironically but because it you know it seems so obvious now and yet it's still sort of a new idea that we should be trying to trying to amplify black voices rather than kind of acting like anthropologists you know studying foreign tribes you know it's yeah it's just fascinating as the person who buys the anthropology books yeah Mm -hmm. that's (laughs) <laughs> there, there was a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sorry, we we did No, I, I wanted to hear <laughs> thoughts mm-hmm. and stuff because I mean that's as of recent as of mid two thousands. Read that and in school, and I kind of mm-hmm. always felt weird about it. But <laughs> mm-hmm. um, 
And I wanted to say also, there's a, I know we should centralize around books, but there's a lot of really powerful Grammy award winning music dealing with this stuff like mm-hmm. Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, um, yeah. Or even about a decade ago now, Erica Badu had New America Part One that really tackles like the over incarceration. Um, the overall black experience, like life in ghettos with um, drugs, segregation, um, both talking about where they're from, like Kendrick and Compton, and even All Right, that song is um, has been used at Black Lives Matter protests and whatnot. But um, I, in this whole idea, I always kind of just <laughs> reduce down to like, how does this happen and like, why and there's a book by um, sociologist um, Michael Kimmel called Angry White Men. It explores a lot of things, but race is definitely central to it. He talk, he interviews uh, people who are like angry internet trolls. <laughs> he an- interviews um, disenfranchised workers, um, like manufacturer people who used to work in manufacturing and whatnot, um, families of school shooters or just trying to figure out why people, you know, blame race for their job losses or why why people blame race for um, anything mm-hmm. that they're that they're feeling disenfranchisement and um, he always boils down to like a concept like aggrieved entitlement. Um, but I, when you were Jen, when you were talking about stuff with uh, Common Ground, both in our mm-hmm. discussion one-on-one yesterday and here today it's just like some of the stuff is just you can pull from 40 years ago directly into this book like what he's talking about and mm-hmm. I liked that he approached it from the sociological perspective um, and, and it's especially pertinent now too with the current political climate and whatnot but yeah and then I had one other book if I could mm-hmm. briefly yeah please. To, but when you brought up sports there's she's a European writer uh, Fatou Diome and she wrote the belly of the Atlantic and it's about um, her and her brother um, they're originally in Senegal she migrates to um, France but sees like the isolation and whatnot there's a really great quote that's uh, in Europe, you're black first, citizens incidentally, and outsiders permanently. Mm-hmm. And she kind of, it's like, throughout the book, she'll like write to her brother, because her brother is obsessed with soccer, and his main goal is to end up on the uh, French soccer team, but she's always saying, like, that's not a way to escape the plight you might be experiencing in Senegal. but it's not even guaranteed that when you come here you'd even be on the team but he's so like narrowly focused that that's going to be the hope and it ties in the uh, 2002 um, FIFA World Cup where Senegal beat France Mm -hmm. and there was you know all the celebration of that but she points out I don't I forget if it's actually a real soccer player or (laughs) fictional character I should have verified that but someone who had that direct experience they came from Senegal to France to be a you know big soccer player they didn't even make the tryouts and then they ended up in so much debt they couldn't even go back home mm-hmm. and just talks about that whole immigrant experience and 
while some people might believe in you know the dream of escaping to this world it shows how hard it is and I think it's parallel to obviously in America and Europe etc yeah it's so interesting in common ground how you see these various you know troubled communities you know communities with real needs people being affected by economic change you know and demographic change and just you know, the um, kind of the development of cities, the expansion of cities, the change of industries, uh, similar things we're seeing now, the change in the economy, the change in the kinds of jobs that are available, you know, the state of American manufacturing, and, you know, these huge sort of very complex forces that are kind of faceless, you know, which are causing many people of, of many races, you know, to lose jobs, to lose income, and yet, you know, it's so easy to light on some scapegoat for the situation because the problem is actually so big and so impersonal and intractable that we end up kind of being angry at the wrong people and not the wrong thing. And you see that over and over again in this book, you know, and there are many books looking at kind of the current political situation and highlighting the same things. Um, there's an interesting book kind of going back to the time period of Common Ground uh, called There Goes My Everything, which was interviews with white Southerners in the age of civil rights, which is fascinating and depressing and, you know, <laughs> it's fascinating and, you know, and disturbing, but uh, it's always interesting when people, you know, really go in and talk to the people who are sort of the face of bigotry um, and trying to get to the bottom of, you know, how they came to believe what they did. There are so many, there's so many amazing books about the civil rights movement, and I have, uh, with great difficulty tried to narrow it down <laughs> to the ones I want to tell you about but I think the book that I um well there's two books I'm always harassing people to read uh one is called The Sugar of the Crop My Journey to Find the Children of Slaves by Sana Butler and this is a book from just a few years ago um and she says in her as she is introducing the book you know whenever she tells people about this book they're like no one's alive whose parents were slaves well, no, actually, <laughs> it's not as long ago as you think. Mm. Uh, and I think this is something that really people need to be reminded of. Mm. Uh, but it's a, really, it's a really fascinating book, and I thought about it a lot uh, later when I was reading The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which mm. I could also go on and on about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, amazing. But one of, the, one of the fascinating kind of side stories in Henrietta Lacks is just this very vivid picture of how slavery impacted families even generations on, you know, how slavery destabilized the families of people who had been affected by it, and how the legacy that was still being born by their grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Um, but the other one that I really wish everyone would read um, is called At the Dark End of the Street by Daniel McGuire. Um, it's At the Dark End of the Street, Black Women, Rape and Resistance, a New History of the Civil Rights Movement from Rosa Parks to the Rise of Black Power. And it really fills in a part of the story which is not told enough um, about women's contributions to the civil rights movement, but also about, you know, about the kind of double difficulty of being black and female. Um, and it taught me things that I had no idea about because, you know, the version of the civil rights story that I imbibed as a child, you know, Rosa Parks is this cuddly old grandmother, you know, she was just riding the bus, she was just tired. But no, Rosa Parks 
was a serious civil rights activist, Mm -hmm. you know, she was a true political activist. She did a ton. You know, it was no accident that she was there. Um, And the way her story is told really, like, reduces her. So read up. She's amazing. She's even more amazing than you think. But yeah, it's a wonderful book, very disturbing. It also reminds me that I should say, um, for people who are going to read Common Ground, that there are some very troubling and graphic things that happen in this book. Um, A graphic sexual assault, uh, a lot of you know, violence against women, violence against many people, but, you know, for me as a reader, the violence against women is particularly difficult to read. So I just want to put that out there to people, you know, read safely. It's definitely worth it. Um, one more book, which I'll see before in there. And this is going way, way back, even earlier. Um, but it's called Capital Men, the Epic Story of Reconstruction Through the Lives of the First Black Congressman by Philip Dre. And this is a period that I knew very little of that before I found this book. And it's really, really, it's a really important missing piece in the story because it's about the struggle of the first black people to try to represent, you know, to represent people in Congress um, after emancipation. And just, you know, obviously you can imagine it was a tough road to hoe, but history has really shortchanged them um, because of course, at the time they were hardly taken seriously and the histories being written in that time and shortly thereafter really kind of diminished them. Um, and they're like, oh, well, you know, they weren't prepared and they weren't effective and, you know, they just couldn't do it. And it's like, well, why do you think that is, really? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine, you know, being the first black congressman in the era of Reconstruction, you know, coming out of slavery and stepping into these incredibly huge and entrenched power structures? Um, so it's just absolutely fascinating, and it really, it really helps to explain, you know, why the progress has been so slow and so difficult. Um, and it's a very interesting contrast with some of the history you get in Common Ground about Irish Americans and just how quickly, I mean, you know, prejudice against the Irish was real and terrible, but just how quickly, especially in Boston, Irish people got representation in government and, in fact, became incredibly powerful in Boston government, um, and still are. It's really fascinating, but uh, it, just, it just shows that, you know, when one person's oppression can't really be compared to another's, they all operate a little differently. They've all got their own subtleties. I could go on and on, uh, but I will stop now, in case someone else would like to recommend another book. Um, I have a book that I have not read yet, but that has been recommended to me by many people, and that I plan on reading. Um, it's called Waking Up White by Debbie Irving, um, and it's, I think, important for white people to recognize our own, like, unintended sometimes, but our, like, complicity in racism and our ben- the way we benefit from racist systems, mm-hmm. um, and that is what this book is about, is sort of her coming to realize that and realizing that she hasn't had to engage with race by virtue of being, you know, like a kind of middle-class white woman, um, mm-hmm. and so... Um, it's kind of about her journey and about how it's hard but necessary. Um, so I think that's not a bad idea for people to read about mm-hmm. um, and you know to educate yourself. Um, and she's really turned into a, um, an activist. And her website has a really fantastic resource page. Um, her name is Debbie Irving. Um, so I would recommend that. Um, I have a couple of like reading lists that I could share that mm-hmm. I think are good if people are interested. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So there's something called the Charleston Syllabus, which was put together after um, that awful shooting in Charleston last summer. Um, it's hosted on the African American Intellectual History Society's website, um, but if you just Google Charleston Syllabus, and we will link to it as well. Um, and we actually have a, we have a book called Charleston yeah, Syllabus there's, in our there's, collection yeah, as well. The University of Georgia Press put out a book as well. Um, containing a lot of these readings and it has both articles and books um, so it's really extensive and it covers like every topic you could imagine it's really well um, curated I highly recommend it I've been sort of slowly going through and trying to read something from each kind of section of it because um, each I think it has like 12 different sections and each section has like eight books at least um, so it's really extensive it's really well done um, a lot of libraries also have lists. Um, I know Eunice was saying the Oakland Public Library has a good list, right? Yeah, they have a really um, good list that has to do with Black Lives Matter, um, and they have one for youth as well. So um, they have maybe like three or four different lists that um, I looked at to do a little research. So. Yeah, I also found the Hennepin County Library um, in Minnesota, which is a great library system. Um, they have a Black Lives Matter reading list specifically for teens um, that looked really good and really covered a range of teens. It wasn't just older teens. It went down a little bit younger. Um, there's also um, a really good book list put together by Left Bank Books, which is a local indie bookstore in St. Louis. Um, and they are really involved in their community. They work with the Ferguson schools. They do, they've really made a big effort to be involved in their community and to respond to that community's needs. Um, and they also have, with community input, created a Black Lives Matter reading list um, that, again, spans all parts of history, goes really in depth. Um, so that list is also really good. Um, and then I also found something that I've just started to explore, which is called the BlackLivesMatterSyllabus.com, and it's part of an NYU class that's running again this fall. Um, a lot of the materials are online, or they give you the citations, so we could get them for you through interlibrary loan. Um, and they also have a ton of like videos from the class of lectures, of guest speakers, and they've had huge names, like Cornell West was there recently. Um, they have interviews with almost all of the major leaders of Black Lives Matter chapters and like protests. They're really extensive and they have all of that online for free. Um, so I recommend that as well. And then finally, sorry, we have, I have more. Yeah, um, there was, we had a, an event here at the library in June specifically talking about mass incarceration. Um, and the two groups that came and presented a lot of really fascinating data and also shared personal stories with us were the Jobs Not Jail, um, Jobs Not Jails Committee, um, which is a campaign in Massachusetts to end mass incarceration in the state. Um, and they were fantastic. They have a lot of great information on their website. Um, and then we also had some people from EPOCA, um, E-P-O-C-A, which is ex-prisoners and prisoners organizing for community advancement. Um, and they had some really powerful stories about how people get caught up in the justice system, um, the criminal justice system, sometimes for you know very small nonviolent offenses, and how that ripple effect in their lives, in their family lives, in their communities' lives, um, can really do a lot of lasting damage. Um, and they're working really hard to help create a bridge for people when they leave the criminal justice system. 
um, to lead really productive lives and to be able to, you know, re-enter society. Um, and they're really interesting and they're really great. Um, they have a lot of good information on their website as well. Going off of that, um, a book that's in that vein is The New um, Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which I read with yeah. the book group a couple so of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a really good book because it, Michelle Alexander kind of lays out chapter by chapter um, why um, the war on drugs came to be and how it's so entrenched in our system. And her whole th um, thing is that this is just kind of something that has replaced um, segregation. Mm -hmm. um, and really it's not a new thing, it's just something that's kind of carried over from the end of the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting read. Definitely. There's a book that just came out by Jeff Chang, who is a really interesting guy, um, who wrote kind of a seminal book about hip hop. Um, he's written a lot about civil rights. Um, and he has an interesting perspective on it as an Asian American, but who is sort of deeply steeped in African American pop culture. Uh, but his new book is called We Gonna Be All Right, Notes on Race and Resegregation. Uh, it's very, very interesting. Of course, it has a lot of really interesting things to say about kind of recent music and pop culture stuff, um, but also about politics and about kind of the concept of diversity, um, you know, and sort of diversity versus equality and all the mm -hmm. things that are happening now. Um, but yeah, the concept of resegregation is really fascinating, especially coming out of having just read Common Ground and knowing that, you know, Boston, for various reasons, you know, is just as de facto segregated as it ever was in the schools. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, you know, maybe even more so than it was at the start. Uh, but yeah, I highly recommend that. There's so much. There's so much good <laughs> stuff. Um, definitely check out we Need Diverse Books, which is yes. a hashtag on Twitter, and also they have a site um, for books written by authors, you know, telling their own stories, mm -hmm. in case you would like to hear from someone other than a room full of Caucasian and Asian American <laughs> library staff, uh, which I highly recommend that you do. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so read Common Ground, get involved, talk about it, come see us for recommendations. We have many. <laughs> It's an endlessly fascinating topic, and uh, thanks for being with us. Bibliophiles is a production of Cary Memorial Library in Lexington, Massachusetts. Matt Schumann engineered the podcast and created our theme music. Do you have questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes? Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash library, or on Twitter and Instagram at library. That's C-A-R-Y-M-E-M -E Library. For show notes and to find out more about us, visit us at carrylibrary.org.